Greetings friends, Sajan Sajito speaking from my cell, still in quarantine, <laughs> which means uh, well, for the next few days at least I, uh, I'm not allowed into any public areas such as the main house or the Dhamma Hall. So I'm in here, so Kuti, and I'll so I'll get onto the grounds. And if I see people then, you know, we keep at least two or three metres apart from each other and respectfully shout, <laughs> which is kind of strange. <laughs> but uh, that's that's the protocol. We tend to take protocols. We're trained in observing protocols. And I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. So I'm wondering how you're getting on. You know, how is it for you? Must have been fairly disruptive, I imagine. Good amount of uncertainty about the future, even perhaps the present, how other people are, friends, relatives, job, these things. Uh, there's nothing you can really do except practice with that. You know, establish yourself, ground yourself in your body. Here you are right now, where you always were. Feel the feeling. Steady yourself in terms of grounded body presence. Take a few breaths. Here you are. Yeah, let it feel the feeling, let it move through. And this is regular Dhamma practice, nothing unusual about that. And maybe this is also the time when you, you know, you, as they say, you, you know, you get a chance to do your yoga and uh, um, bake bread and uh, darn your socks and meditate and uh, clean out that messy corner of the room, the cupboard, or the stuff in it you never got round to, read the good book, uh, and so on. And maybe also just the people you're living with. Um, you know, learning to be with each other without necessarily having a lot to do, uh, listening, taking time to listen, see, you know, negotiating contact, how much space does the other person need at this time, how much space do you need, where are the boundaries, um, how are you, how am I, how is this working, these kinds of gestures of proper relationship. And meditate. And hopefully something good will come out of this. If we have learnt to you know, be without a lot of the appurtenances which always were fragile, constructed, conditioned, you know, something we really didn't have much final say over. And we've learned how we can, you know, separate ourselves, is distinguish ourselves from all the social economic webs that we're wound up in, um, then something good can come out of that. And as we already see, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, in this country alone, in Britain alone, hundreds of thousands of people, offering service freely, offering to help, getting in touch with each other, small errands, supporting, driving. And it's great because, you know, you realise don't to pay people to do good. 
People love doing good. You don't have to force people to do good. People like it. So they have a law to tell you to do good. <laughs> you know, the normal ways in which we are directed and constrained. You know? How real is that? And maybe it's because a lot of the time what we're doing is not really that good. It's just getting a living. But uh, how good is that? How worthwhile is that? You know, monasteries run on people who just want to enjoy doing good, serve, help, and feel good about it. Now, clearly, we all need to get our requisites together. How much do you need? When your heart is happy, when you feel comfortable, when you're good people, you don't need a lot of distractions and stuff because you're contented where you are. It's that simple. That was always the, you know, the Buddhist paradigm. Community, uh, the assembly, fourfold assembly, um, support, mutual support. So whether you're Buddhist or non-Buddhist, then hopefully some of that is, is becoming more apparent and the skills that are needed and the difficulties of it, difficulties in relationship really because the other person is always a mystery and even if you've lived with them for 20 years you don't really know what's arising in their hearts and minds at this time and it's better to know that you don't know and keep that sense of space and how are you and listening rather than assume you know and start telling them what you this and that and just immediately jumping in and you know what you should be and what I want and I'm this and I'm that just no respect his first gesture is differentiate respectfully and then open the space and then can we negotiate contact how how and how are you is the simplest way of doing that isn't it to begin with what's happening yeah and this is how I am where do we go from there so I'm still learning this, um, trying, but uh, that's that's great. I'm a mystery myself sometimes. So I'm also learning about this and meditations about that. Yes, now it is. Actually, you know, I'm in this cell is kuti and it's really not that much different from the norm and strangely enough uh, my first few years of, of meditation were in this kind of situation um, and I worked it out two years eight months solitary uh, and as a beginner uh, from no meditation 15 minutes this looks good Think I've known my nature. I think I need some restraint. Um, go to a monastery. Be there, and just fit in. You know? um, learn, learn, learn. So that's what I did, and they uh, gave me a kuti, which is probably slightly smaller than this little wooden box. Clear, obviously, no Wi-Fi, no internet. Um, and bring food once a day 
and it was a the area I was in was called the Vipassana section, which was a special area of the monastery. And there were 12 kutis, the same size, and we were in a ring about two and a half metres apart from each other. So fairly close, a ring, uh, you know, and silence, no talking. I mean, uh, it could, it could, we'd have been talking, could have been quite a party, but no talking and no conversation, and we were all in our kutis. The kutis weren't always full. Uh, most people were either a laymen, or they were all men, laymen, women had another court, another area, either laymen or monks would be there for maybe a week, ten days, two weeks, months, or something like that. And it was a special thing where you went and did a session, and then you went back to the norm, which was... Uh, highly relational, of course. Yeah. Yeah. This is a Thai society's highly developed, refined, relational uh, society in its own customs and conventions. And the monastery, by and large, is exactly the same. There's, they were interactive. There were monks, summoneras, mechis, and nuns, laymen, laywomen, all sort of interacting in their own respectful, spacious ways. Uh, I didn't see much of it, but I could kind of glimpse it from outside the gates of the Vipassana area. But we were in lockdown, and I was the only one who stayed there for <laughs> a period of time, because uh, it was quite extreme. And of course, I didn't have anywhere to go back to anyway. Um, so every day we go out in Pindapad, but that was silent. Um, two or three of us would go arms round in the town. And that was uh, just mind-blowing, really, because people would, this would be like five o'clock in the morning, people would be coming out in order to put a spoonful of rice in a bowl, my bowl. And they weren't wealthy people. They were just, you know, fairly humbly dressed. Um, and they could put a spoon of rice in my bowl. There was nothing, there was no person interaction. Um, but it was just, this is what you do to the renunciant, to the bhikkhu. And when you'd go through an hour of that every day, you get a feeling of, well, you know, you've really got to, you've got to live up to this. You can't fool around. You know, you've really got to live up to this. And that, that dana and that faith and that belief in you as being some, somebody worthwhile, <laughs> worth offering to, <laughs> which <laughs> was beyond me. <laughs> I couldn't see anything worth offering to in this. <laughs> but anyway, and then of course that was that was very human interactive. The monastery was less interactive for the Vipassana area, but when we reflected upon it, they just basically give me a place to live and and free food. No questions asked. You, you know, you keep the moral precepts, stay as long as you like. Nothing asked. Didn't have to do a thing. I quite like to have done something, but no, stay and meditate. With a feeling of, if you train your mind and cultivate your mind, this is bound to be good for everything, for all of us. You are, in a way, sustaining or part of the sustaining of the great transmission of Dhamma Buddha established. 
that's justification alone. Keep the precepts, train your mind, wonderful. And what you're doing in this intensive retreat, we want to support it. It was unspoken, but that was the basic statement of the place. And you think, well, you know, you've got to find something, you know, work out some good stuff in your mind. Of course, that was incredibly difficult to that stage was so uh, chaotic. But uh, once a day, the Salmonera would bring some food around. Open the door, and there's a basin, a couple of basins, and some there, put some food in your hand, dashes off. It's a little, you know, basically a young kid. I mean, early teenage, I guess. Look, like he's about 11 or 12, but he could have been a bit older. So they're basically like a newspaper boy. Yeah, here's your food, uh, off. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not exactly relationally interactive. <laughs> But the other thing, also once a day, well, not always, but on occasion, you'd hear a five o'clock in the evening, you hear a slight different voice, you know, slightly higher. You open the door, and there's a couple of figures in white, and their face went, oh, it's it's nuns, you know, downturned face, because they're not supposed to look at you. And a slightly strange feeling that you've done something wrong, but they've got a big kettle of drink okay so i've been told what to do you know roll out my little strip of cloth with my mug on the end of it and they pour the tea in whatever it is without looking at me and then put it down put it away and then then they go off and i'm like wow it's kind of strange feeling somehow slightly <laughs> but okay, that's 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 the training and that's their way of doing it. Um, right. So anyway, I was doing this lockdown meditation whereby you didn't you're not supposed to feel anything. It was called dry insight, and it meant focusing attention on the rising and falling of the abdomen. A particular point in the abdomen just noting rising and falling of the abdomen and as you get refiner at that you notice phenomena thoughts and whatever just bubbling away but you don't go into them and so you just get this sense of realizing the fundamental anicca impermanence of things well yeah <laughs> uh, but when you've got nothing else to do apart from that nobody to talk to yeah well you know half an hour but got to get through 24 hours uh, uh, and then uh, after i got a little bit more proficient at it the teacher would come around once a day give me a 20 minute instruction and then the things you could focus on say a point in your knee or your elbow so you breathe out focusing on the belly and then you breathe in focus on the elbow breathe out focusing your belly breathe in focusing on the elbow and I mean, it wasn't a heartwarming experience in fact heartwarming wasn't really on the agenda <laughs> it wasn't even 
well, you know, there's a lot of things it wasn't, but <laughs> that was the aim. It was dry. It certainly was dry. And I could do that, and I could walk up and down inside the coulee very, very slowly. And sometimes you'd hear the um, people in the town, which was just a few hundred metres away, I guess. This was, wasn't one imagine Charles Monastery, it was a town monastery. And you'd hear them kind of, you know, the sounds of people. And Thailand's a very outdoor culture because it's warm. So you hear music and people talking. First you feel a bit annoyed and then you think, yeah, kind of nice having fun with each other. <laughs> lonely, lonely, lonely. <laughs> oh dear. So then back to the rising and falling of the abdomen. So that was the meditation, this kind of clamp down thing. And, uh, but I don't know, you know, I think if I'd have been very proficient at it, or I'd come to after 10 years maybe, but as a beginner, that was, uh, it was tough. Two years, eight months, silence. Then one of the, one of the times they had let me out, <laughs> sounds like a jail, doesn't it? No, I've been asked to, invited to go to another monastery, Ajahn Sumedho, yeah, in, in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand, and it's very warm, open, you know, it didn't seem to be clamped down on anything. Um, oh, it was nice. Uh, and then my father passed away, and so I had to go back to Britain. So I um, I found out that Ajahn Sumedho was in England, so I'm going to check, look him up. So I did, and there he was, in this little place in Hampstead, long story, but very welcoming, and they were interacting with each other. This is different. And and then also they um, they lived under quite a refined degree of protocols in Vinaya, which I hadn't been trained in, so I picked that up. And But then most importantly was the meditation. First of all, I couldn't get what he was doing because he was just... You know, be aware of your thoughts coming and going, moods coming and going, and just be that awareness of that. And I'd say, well, yeah, but what are you supposed to do? And they say, well, notice that's a doubt that arises in the mind because you always have the idea you should be doing something. Oh, but, I mean, but shouldn't you do something? So that, that, that experience you're having is called doubt. Can you just be aware of that? Okay, well. But why? <laughs> so, didn't notice the space. And you're relating to a phenomenon and it's passing through a space. And you can, you can, you, that's possible to have your life stories, themes, moods, feelings, upsets, confusion, running through that space. It is possible to step back to a, have a holding around that that is aware, non-reactive, not blaming anybody for anything. And then that's, that's kind of peaceful, isn't it? It's not a bad place to start. And keep going with it. So I began to pick that up and then I began to revise mindfulness of breathing and realising the Buddha didn't teach us to focus on a point anywhere. 
And he said, be thoroughly aware, sensitive to the entire body, breathing in and out. And when you do that, you have to sit in a comfortable way. And the mindfulness that that it establishes is like around you. I mean, your awareness is around that experience. You feel your body rising and tingling slightly and then subsiding. And you can be with the flow of that experience of breathing out. Occasionally the mind jumps out and you just... You can be around that and gather that back in. Mind jumps out, you can reach out. Just how's that in your body and breathing out. And so just capturing everything within mindfulness, rather mindfulness being like a narrow pointed thing. Actually, mindfulness being something that gathers around and collects everything and lets things, you know, be breathed out and breathed in. So I practice, I'm still practicing with that. And uh, it just feels, feels like this is, this is, this is, this is life. And life is, does this. Life does this. Everything's doing this. Trees are doing it. (laughs) And, uh, and then, you know, come to terms with that. You know, just meet like that, meet things at that level where you're allowing them to be natural and adjust your mental attitudes and your mental perspectives and your aims and goals and ideas to the reality of what is happening rather than trying to make what's happening fit into your ideas and structures and views, which are purely. <laughs> And so this is the great, this is self, it's just great Dharma. Dharma is nature. And you also begin to sense this pervading, which is you get, after a time, you get a feeling of like subtle energy pervading your body. So it's not just the movement of the muscles, it's a kind of, where the edges of your felt body begin to become softer and you feel almost slightly dissolving or not so clearly, but such a clear edge within the space. You're, you're actually, your body's energies are meeting and merging in the space in which your body is sitting. And there's no real hard and fast boundary between the piece that I call me and the piece that I call not me. They're, they're relationally intertwined. I think this is a great... Well, for me, it's a really useful model for what relationship is about from a Dharma perspective. There's certainly clarity, mindfulness, attention, and yet you realise we're not exactly separate. We're always with something. And if we get very much into mind on it, then the edges get hard and the boundaries get hard. But if we're more... Well, how is it? It's a mystery, and let's sense it. Then the edges become much more soft and pliable and flexible, and, and there's a natural quality of warmth, which in uh, in the Anapanasati teachings is is equated with piti, uh, rapture. 
sukkah, comfort and ease. And of course, in other areas of life, it's to do with metta, gladness and warm-heartedness. So that also is a pervasive quality. It's not just, okay, here's some metta bump for you, and metta for you, and then metta to my dead uncle. And, you know, it's like the real ones that test us are not the people we can just conjure up in our, in our minds who just remain as images, but the ones you're actually meeting who are not fitting into one's wishes and ideas and, and attitudes. You know, it's okay. Metta. Karuna, if there is a struggle in in the in the mix, either my struggle or your struggle, misunderstandings, bit of compassion. This is humans. We we do we are different. There's going to be places where we don't quite meet, and sometimes that can get quite intense. So let's have some compassion here for this human predicament. Mudita, when we do finally, yeah, it works, and there's a happiness. Um, that's just nature Uh, it is a happy thing to be with in harmony with good people it's supposed to be food for the heart this is why the Buddha so consciously recommended the company of the good people both to encourage us and tell us things but also because it's enjoyable to be received and to be listened to. And opeka, equanimity for the sense of we just don't know where this is going. Uh, we only have this moment. Things can, bad times might come, difficulties might come. We just try to keep in touch with our karma. And what we can do, or all we can do, is bring forth our good karma. And that, of course, is why a place like this is not a prison, you know, because it's got good karma in it and it's something one is encouraged to linger on. Of course, one of the other things that uh, occurred once I'd um, got out of the uh, uh, Vipassana compound was chanting. Again, a really uh, helpful process once you really get it because it can be just oh well here we go like Sunday school or something perfunctory that you're supposed to do but if it starts like that and you're desperately concerned to get all the words right your experience of it is this physical form through its muscles and flexions is squeezing air through the throat where it resonates and it's being shaped by the mouth and then sent out into the space. We produce sound. This lump of flesh, air, which neither of these have sound, moving together through this, sound arises, it transmits, it pervades the atmosphere and you can hear it. So there's this immense mingling in the space that you're in because your sound is now outside and it's heard by others when you're chanting together their sound and the sounds begin to merge 
and you get the experience of harmony, which is first of all a, a metaphor or word derived from music, but it begins to be an attitude of heart. I'm in harmony with my fellows. And you feel it. So realize that these teachings that we have were never written down at first. They were always transmitted through this process whereby the Buddha or some teacher or another would speak to an attentive person and the attentive person would hear a voice. And the, the phrase is the two, I think the two factors that cause right view are the voice of another and one's own deep attention. That's a sutta reference. The voice of another. Not just what they say, but the voice. Okay, because in the voice you've got the sense of a living human presence, you've got the voice tone, you've got the inflections, you've got the volume, you've got the nuances. The whole thing is mixed together. It's not just a piece of information. It's a piece of humanity, a piece of human heart and a piece of human breath that is contained in that sound is going into your hearing and into your heart. That's transmission. That is transmission and that is sacred. And although there was some writing at the time of the Buddha, sacred things were never written down. No, because you know, a piece of bamboo isn't worthy of the scripture. It has to be spoken. Because then you've got the full embodiment and the full attention and you've got the scenario where the person is really listening. And also the teacher is looking at them, checking out they need, looking confused or they're getting it, they can pace it. So there's a real rapport between the speaker and the listener, that's what makes it sacred. And in our training rules, it says you, you, you should not teach Dhamma unless there is some scenario where there is a sense of respect, which is not just a formal gesture, but people are listening openly and respectfully. Otherwise, there's no transmission. It's just either an argument or a lecture or a sermon or something. That's not Dhamma transmission. And of course, in the spoken, they got a chance to ask any questions. Most of the time, they didn't seem to ask many questions. Because you take it in, and then you give it your own deep attention, what's worthwhile. But at least you've been talked, spoken to, not, you know, like connected to. And that in itself is a huge part of what Dhamma's about, in my opinion. So, chanting. Mm -hmm. So even now, in my kuti that I chant, um, and, you know, it's not, my voice is never that good, and now it's a kind of raspy old man's voice, so it's, but it doesn't have to be, because when I chant quietly, in my, in my, my mind's hearing, I hear, the assembly of all those chanting occasions with others. 
So at that time I'm then in the assembly of those who are reciting the Dhamma. And I feel the presence of that. And if there's any sense of aloneness that's problematic, then that like dispels it. Because to me, aloneness is not a matter of just not having any other body around, but having people around you can't connect to. That's to me what aloneness feels like. Yeah. Um, I I can be in solitude. You know, I, I'm okay. You know, and particularly in a place like this where there's wonderful trees and nature and uh, you know meditation. But uh, the real so often the topic is relational diet, relational experience, and how difficult it is that we can live millions of people in a city in a sense of dystopia. You know, somebody's died in a in an apartment, nobody even knew who they were. They live next door. Never talked with. And that's the case. You know, the person in, who was hired in London to go to the funerals of the people who've died that nobody knew who they were. The police break the door down after a week or so because there's you will smell something or the newspaper letters are stuffed in the box. Some old guy in there, nobody knew he was. So this woman thought you just to go and be there at the funeral. So at least somebody, one person witnesses this person's passing over a decease because nobody next door cares. You know? This is what we can get to. So, you know, but then when you when you bring people into the heart and you, you chant and you practice metta, then, you know, you really resonate with this mysterious human predicament, sorrows, joys, with compassion. And you realise if there's any person anywhere you can send a good word a good thought to you do it <laughs> you just do it you just do it because what else do we do as human beings that's really human and not divisive and not about what religion you belong to and this is hopefully yeah, maybe something that we can, uh, you know, take with us uh, into our, into our lives whenever situations allow it. If you're in solitude, at least you do it in your heart in solitude. But in that magic where your body makes the sound, the air, the breath, the resonance, and you hear it. And awareness links that up. There's nobody alone. There's no, because there's no edges to where you are. You're with, you're with the sound as it resonates and it disappears into silence. And that's all we are really. It's just that. 
you're just your song as it goes into silence and that's that's beautiful so sing it <laughs> chant it think it live it so i'm just going to close with a chant since i've been talking about it and obviously you can wind back and chant along because you'll notice that uh, with chanting, you, you, your voice can't cover all the words, so somebody else has to cover for you, and that's part of the part of the beauty of it. Meta sahangate na jetasahe kang disam paritova viharati tatadatiyang tatadatiyang dandajatutang indiyotangado tiriyang savantisa padataya savavantam lokang meta sahangate na jetasa Vipule namahangatena Pamanena haverena gambaya Pajena paritua viharatiti So as you can hear, you know, my voice can't cover all those, so I need your, we all, we all need each other's voices to cover the bits that we couldn't cover. <laughs> That's a good thing to remember. So take care, look after yourselves, and hope we can uh, meet uh, whenever the occasion allows it. Be well. <laughs>